welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Tom Parfit. Tom walked across the northern flank of the Russian Caucasus, from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea, through republics whose names are synonymous with violence, extremism, and warfare. He wanted to understand how places like Chechnya and Dagestan became crucibles of personal and national trauma. His book High Caucasus is a fascinating read that explores a part of the world I knew very little about. We spoke about the Circassians, mass relocations under Stalin, and high mountain villages where resourceful people have survived for centuries on the stoniest of ground. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I suppose we should start by orienting listeners unfamiliar with this part of the world. So uh, where are the Caucasus? Uh, what was your route and why did you decide to walk across them? The Caucasus is the area between uh, the Black Sea and the Caspian. And uh, my book is about the North Caucasus, which is the part which is entirely inside Russia on the, the northern flanks of the mountains. So effectively, the, the, the spine of the Greater Caucasus mountain range forms the border between uh, Russia and former Soviet Georgia and Azerbaijan. Uh, so I was passing through the North Caucasus republics, which are constituent parts of Russia, the Russian Federation, and that's places like Adygea, um, Karachay-Cherkessia, Kabardino-Balkaria, North Ossetia, uh, Ingushetia, Chechnya, Dagestan. Um, so that's a, there's probably a distance of about 450 miles as the pro flies, but because of what one of my friends calls the wiggle factor when you're walking, you know, um, and I had to take several kind of quite long detours and things. It added up to about a thousand miles to walk. Yeah. And so the walk I undertook in 2008, and that was four years after I'd reported. Uh, I, I'm a correspondent now and was in the past for 20 years a correspondent in Russia for British newspapers. And I'd reported in 2004 on the Beslan school siege. I imagine a lot of your listeners will remember that. It was a terrible uh, moment when um, several dozen Islamist militants, mostly Chechens and English, um, seized a school in the neighboring majority Christian Republic of North Ossetia on the first day of school, September the 1st, and they took hostage the 1,000 or so, or 1,100 or so uh, pupils and teachers and parents who were there to celebrate the day. It's a, it's a big day in the Russian calendar. People will come to celebrate on the first day of school. And they were herded into the gym by these militants, the hostages, and then the uh, militants rigged it up with explosives, and there was a three-day siege, effectively. Uh, the hostages were inside. They were not given much water or food to drink. Um, you know, it was obviously a terrible situation for the relatives who were outside, desperate to try and do something to help their relatives inside, and, and, and but not able to do anything, really. And, and, and uh, then there were the security forces, the Russian security forces and soldiers, outside and, and also many local vigilantes who had weapons and uh, in, in the end the after on the third day there were a, a couple of explosions in the gym no one quite knows how that happened but that triggered a firefight between the militants inside the school who retreated further into the school and and the security forces and the vigilantes outside and then the, the roof caught fire as well of the gym where the hostages were held so this combination of the explosions and the shooting and the fire ended up with more than 300 of the hostages being killed and, and the majority of them children, about 185, I think. 
<clears throat> and uh, so I was there as a reporter. And obviously, you know, these things um, is a thousand times worse for the people involved, the people who are in the gym who survived and and the relatives of those who were killed and injured. That's quite obvious. But it's also quite a distressing thing as a reporter. And um, I had a, after that, I had a recurring dream for several years about seeing a woman collapse at the moment she was told that her child had been killed at the school. She was outside the hospital, and that came back to me quite regularly for those years, um, just this moment of her tumbling to the ground. And uh, so after three or four years, I struck on this idea of walking across the North Caucasus because I thought that was perhaps a way that I could somehow kind of dilute the bad memories of Bislan with something well, more positive, I guess, just to see another side of the Caucasus. But also at the same time, I thought I might be able to kind of dig down a bit deeper into the deeper causes of the, the Bislan school siege and the general Islamist violence across the North Caucasus. And I suppose there was a third thing as well. I had always always been very keen on long distance walking, and I'd done quite a bit of that in my holidays when I was at university and things. And I sort of wanted to get back to what the serendipity of those journeys that I'd made earlier on. So there was these sort of three things which came together to make me think that I would undertake this walk. Walking is such a great way to get to know a place as well, because you're you sort of throw yourself on the mercy of strangers throughout the trip and you you interact in a way that you don't when you come jetting into a place and fly out or travel by bus i, I totally agree yeah absolutely i mean um you know a lot of people talk about the therapeutic benefits of, of walking and i believe in that too you know it does have this wonderful kind of liquid rhythm to it and so on but i also like the idea of it as a kind of method you know as you're saying it's a way of making yourself vulnerable making yourself accessible to people you kind of have to confront what's happening in front of you you can't run away. You have to use your charm in a way. Sometimes you have to use your guile a little bit. Um, so, yeah, as a means of um, getting to know a place, I think it's great. So you opened the book with an epigraph by Edith Durham. Did she inspire the title? She did, actually, yeah. There's a, um, an excerpt, a short excerpt from High Albania, which is a book that uh, Edwardian British traveler Edith Durham wrote about traveling around Albania, uh, which happened to be her journey exactly 100 years before mine and that that's a, a a book and a journey that i've enjoyed for for years since i got to know it 20 25 years ago when i traveled to albania myself quite a bit and uh yeah so it's, that's very much a tribute to her I, I did a podcast on edith durham last uh i think last summer i was hiking in the accursed mountains for i did a, a 10 or 12 day journey i think it was that struck me some of the similarities too with um, the svaneti region in georgia the tower houses and uh and play, the, the the way the structures and the villages were formed, it, it looked very similar to some of the Albanian villages. Like, did they have the same history of blood feuds as you saw in the Accursed Mountains? Uh, that's true. I mean, it's also there's always a bit of danger of making these kind of generalizations, isn't there? But, but I, I I do think there are some similarities there. Definitely, there there is uh, to some extent a tradition of um, blood feud in the Caucasus. I don't think it's quite as codified as it is in Albania with very elaborate rules uh at least in the past um but the, in a way there is a similar feel of these uh these very kind of modest uh, stone dwellings strong feeling of uh personal dignity and honor which should not shouldn't be insulted um so yeah there there are i think some commonalities there definitely yeah i, I only know of one other place in um 
the Mani Peninsula in Greece that has tower houses like that. So it struck me as quite interesting that you, you, you only find them in these three places, as far as I know. Right. Fascinating. I didn't know that about the money. I guess Patrick Lee Fermer probably wrote about that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, his book on, yeah. the, on the region. So how, how long had you been living in Russia at the time of your journey? And did you speak Russian fluently at that point? Yeah, I did pretty much. I mean, um, I, I don't speak like a native Russian, of course. So I'd only I'd been there for four years uh, when I no, sorry, I beg your pardon, six years. I arrived in Russia in 2002. Uh, so this land happened two years after I arrived, and and the walk was six years after I uh, arrived in Russia and been working there as a correspondent. So you say in the book that there's no place without history. There are, however, places where history seems to cast a great shadow, and the Caucasus is one of those. I want to ask you about three key events that, that seem to shape the region. Sure. The first being the Caucasian War. So tell, you say that this was the defining moment in the history of the hitherto independent mountain peoples, most of them followers of Islam. So what, what happened in the Caucasus War? Right, yeah. So, well, in the early 19th century, um, as the Russian Empire was expanding, and the Tsarist troops began to move beyond the line of Cossack frontier settlements that were already established on the Caucasus steppe. And there had been uprisings in Chechnya already as Russia edged southwards since probably the sort of late 1700s. And um, Russia was basically accusing the Highlanders of constantly raiding into Cossack territory. And so a, a war of conquest was launched on on two fronts, basically. And, um, you know, was, there was also obviously a much uh, greater aspect in that the area would act for the Russian Empire as a, a kind of buffer against Iran and the Ottoman Empire. But this war started in earnest around 1817, and it lasted until 1864. So this was the, the might of the Russian Empire, the Tsarist army, taking on these small highland nations who nonetheless were very effective at fighting in the mountains. And they were led uh, by, at least in the east of the North Caucasus, by Imam Shamil, who was a very kind of tenacious Sufi commander. And in the west, towards the Black Sea, where I began my walk, Russia was facing various Circassian tribes um, who didn't have a kind of unifying leader. And then separating those two focal points of the resistance was the sort of mostly peaceable central Caucasus where Russia had an ally in the um, Ossetians who were Christians and uh, they controlled the road over the mountains via the Pass of the Cross into Georgia, which had joined or been coerced into joining the empire in 1801. So would this roughly be the same time that they were pushing into Central Asia as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So this was all very part of a kind of... um, a Russian expansion into what it saw as, as its kind of orient, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and it had certainly an aspect of that um, orientalism that we might see in, I don't know, Britain's attitudes towards uh, India or something like that. But 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 the interesting thing here is that, um, you know, Russia was expanding into mostly into contiguous territory, certainly in the Caucasus at least. Yeah, so very much the time of the Great Game then, when when this this whole region sort of formed a buffer zone between British India and an expansionist Russia? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that, um, for example, the Circassians who were fighting the Russians in the North West Caucasus became so cherished and loved in Europe and, 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 and the States, you know, because they were seen as being these um, very noble savages who were for several decades um, keeping off the might of the Russian uh, empire. And, uh, but, 
at the same time, there was quite a pragmatic thing there because they were seen as a certain sort of buffer against um, potential Russian encroachment on, you know, Russian uh, British possessions in India, for example. Yeah, these seem like quite an interesting people. So you, you write in the book that in the 19th century, Russians were puzzled that the Highlanders spurned their offer of civilization, sheathed as it was in the glove of conquest, but they were also enthralled by their spirited adversaries. The Caucasus was at once savage and seductive, a stealer of hearts as well as as well as a stealer of people, and its allure was only doubled by the train of soaring peaks and gushing torrents. So tell tell me a little more about the Circassians. Yeah, that's true. So, well, they they certainly um, were obviously seen both the Circassians and the fighters in the eastern part of the Caucasus, the Chechens and the Avars, as primitives in a way, I suppose, from the Russian point of view. And they were seen as people who need to be dominated, who needed to have Christian culture brought to them, to be they needed to be put on the right path, uh, that they were, you know, double dealing and would stick a dagger in you at the earliest opportunity. But on the other hand, there was a kind of fascination with them and that idea of them being the kind of noble savage that I was just mentioning, that they were uh, indisputably great horsemen and fighters, that they were very proud. Uh, that they were, they kind of looked magnificent in their, in their clothes and uh, their weapons were, um, wonderful. And, you know, on the, on the, on the frontier between the Cossacks and the peoples of the North Caucasus, there was a fairly kind of lively trade going on. And, and, um, you know, the, the North Caucasus Highlanders sold Cossacks weapons, which they made and, and so on. And, you know, the, the way that the Cossacks dressed, who were, uh, you know, the, the the frontier of the Russian advance uh, was very much a copy of what Highlanders looked like, you know. So there was this very interesting mix of kind of revulsion and attraction. So for those who don't know or who only know the name, the, the Cossacks were um, descendants of Tatars who served as sort of a buffer between Russia and and these territories? That's right, yeah, exactly, yeah. So they were sort of kind of descendants of Tatar groups and runaway serfs who fled to Russia's borderlands and. They lived this kind of freebooting life in exchange for defending its frontiers, effectively. Um, so they were living in the northern hinterlands of the Black and the Caspian Seas. So that's now southern Ukraine and Russia. And they ran their own communities, but they also became a kind of advanced guard for territorial expansion. And they gave their military service to the state in exchange for kind of degree of autonomy and, and privilege, I guess. Um, so they were a kind of vanguard. So would they have seen themselves as Russians or was this sort of a loyalty they traded for to be left alone? No, I think they did see themselves as Russians and they obviously very much saw themselves as Orthodox Christians. Yeah, but they did have this, you know, to Russian to Russians from further north, they were, I don't know, somehow kind of positioned between this idea of the self and the other really. So in a way, they were quite kind of familiar. They were sort of Russians. They were ours, but also they were quite distant and a little bit troubling. You know, they were kind of these slightly kind of unshackled pirates from far off shores. So in a way, they're kind of symbol of the identity crisis in in Russia as a sort of place adrift between Europe and Asia. So was the Caucasian War, was this the period when the Caucasus starts showing up in Russian literature? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's true. So there, there was a, a, a you know a burgeoning Caucasus literature, and uh, you know um, quite a lot of it was quite sort of lurid, orientalia, 
you know it was it was about kind of um bloodthirsty warriors and dusky maidens and stuff but you know the, the russia's greatest writers were engaged in writing about the caucasus pushkin and and um lermontov and uh eventually tolstoy and there was quite an interesting trajectory there i guess you know because um Pushkin was actually quite sympathetic to the to the Russian advance, and he 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 wrote um, a poetry in which he there, there was the, the the Russian military leader. There was um, a general called Yamolov, and he had talked about how um, you know basically that the Caucasus should shake in fear in front of Russia, and um, you know Pushkin wrote about that in his poetry, saying you know bow down your snowy head, O Caucasus, Yamolov comes, you know, and one of one there was a literary critic at the time who wrote to a friend a private letter saying, I can, you know, I can't believe that, um, that Pushkin has become this ally of bloody butchers, you know, because the, the, the war in the Caucasus was prosecuted with a great deal of, uh, uh brutality against civilians. Um, then there was Lermontov, for example, who was a, a lot more ambivalent. He was actually right at the front. He, he, he fought there and he described in the poem that he wrote Valeric about being in a battle and, and just this kind of terrible, beastliness of the of the fight and the blood sullying the water of the river where they were standing and fighting and then you come to Tolstoy later on who was really um you know of course he played to some of the familiar tropes about Russian aristocrats going to to the Caucasus to sort of uh, get rid of their ennui and have a great adventure but at the same time he was really a kind of anti-war writer and wrote about the, the terrible destruction of villages and uh, and so on, and he, you know, to this day is is uh, appreciated in Chechnya, for example, because of that. There's a, there's a Tolstoy museum in Chechnya. What do people think of a, a novel like A Hero of Our Time in the region? That's the, I think the best known one, probably about this area. Yeah, I must admit, I don't. That's not something I've ever particularly really discussed uh, with friends there or people I know. So I, I'll have to say I don't know the the, the answer to that question. I mean, I I, I think. Um, in general, looking at that literature, people in the region are, on the one hand, proud. You know, there is a proud, there is a great pride and martial tradition in in the Caucasus, but of course, they don't like that aspect of it where they're portrayed to some extent as um, savages who are going to sneak down the sneak down the river and put a knife in you. You know, who could like that? So it's it's it's, it's an ambivalence, I guess. It's interesting how long those types of stereotypes persist as well. Have you seen that film, Kidnapping Caucasian Style? I have, yeah, exactly. So the, 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 certainly this is really a trope that runs from the 19th century into the Soviet period and even the post-Soviet period, the idea that um, the um, Caucasus is, uh, is a place where you might get kidnapped and, or stolen, effectively. And the sort of... Uh, in Russia, in a way, there's the fear of that, but it's also slightly the thrill of the idea. I, I write in the book about one of the early trips I made to Chechnya and being taken up into the hills by the headman of a village there and traveling with two Russian women. And um, we were driving through the Argun Gorge when we suddenly heard this sort of rat-tat-tat off the cliffs and realized that it was uh, probably some militant shooting. And uh, the guard who was driving us stopped and got out to have a look around. And I remember that one of the the young woman saying, oh, this is where we get sold into slavery. And it was almost like a little thrill, you know, that um, mixed up with the fear. So that's interesting, yeah. There were some interesting bits of truth and the exaggerations as well in that film, like the the uh, portrayal of toasting 
I was, I was, we were just talking earlier that um, I was in Georgia last week and we got caught in the rain and in a village in Svaneti with some, some guys who happened to be under the same umbrella and they had a, some cheese bread and a water cooler jug of homemade wine and the toasting began. And <laughs> that's true. They, they fire back into entire, the, the entire glass of wine goes down with every toast, you know, and that just continues and becomes increasingly elaborate as their eyes get increasingly smaller. And the whole thing was over yeah. in about 40 minutes because yeah, well, nobody that, could stand up at that point. That's true, isn't it? I mean, we, all of us who've been to the Caucasus, uh, including you now, um, and know that this is true. You know, I have a friend who even has a term for it. You know, they have a sort of fire water in, in Georgia called Chacha, and he calls it a Chacha ambush. You know, just making that, you know, that moment where you're just not quite expecting it and suddenly you're in a drinking session with a bunch of people. There's always truth, a little bit of truth, a little in the, in these stereotypes, isn't there? And and, um, and certainly when I set off on my journey to the Caucasus, there's quite a lot of Russian friends who they said, oh, you'll be a new Shurik. Shurik is the, is the hero of the film that you mentioned, isn't he? Who goes mm. to collect toasts in the, in the Caucasus <laughs> as a kind of folklore expedition. Yeah. <laughs> So the second event that um, seems to have shaped the region took place in Soviet times, uh, Lenin's policy of indigenization. Was that responsible for creating the ethnic republics that we know today? Um, well, it was certainly responsible. This was in the 1920s and the 1930s when Lenin had the idea that certain kind of Russian chauvinism needed to be eroded in, inside this new Soviet empire. And the way to do that was a kind of um affirmative action where they would give regional elites more power on their territories uh where there would be more teaching of uh, local languages uh the, the kind of institutionalizing of ethnicity in the state infrastructure and that was pursued you know for some way through the 20s and into the early 30s and you know in a way it probably had quite a sort of positive effect for a lot of those peoples but eventually, Stalin came to the idea, I think, that um, rapid industrialization was much more important priority and that really um, nationality should be kind of dissolved into Soviet man who was going to produce this great leap forward. So there was a kind of reversal of Karinizatsu, which is, means indigenization, basically putting down roots. In the end, you know, in, in the late 30s, collectivization had kicked in that was something which was particularly abhorrent to people in the mountains so you know having animals livestock expropriated and horses and things especially for people with great pride in their horse riding tradition you know, so there was some resistance to that and these uh, smaller nations began to be kind of labeled as uh, being rather dangerous in fact and kind of um, potentially kind of bourgeois opponents to the to the regime and so on in the end it uh, we, we saw during the second world war there was a deportation of several of these nations in the north caucasus who were deported on 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 mass to uh, central asia as a punishment for supposedly collaborating with the invading nazis which was only true to a very small extent certain number of partisans yeah so th that was the third great uh, kind of a historical event that that I had wanted to ask you about that seemed to have shaped things. Like, so the Lenin's collectivization was a way to um, sort of inoculate people against more virulent forms of nationalism and dissuade them from seeking ties to uh, troublesome diasporas in a sense. And then Stalin comes along and says, no, this, this uh, 
small independent communities uh, is not what we want at all. We have to eradicate all tradition and and make a sort of Soviet technological man and starts to wipe this out. And these mass relocations seem to scar the regions even to this day. Like how much of the strife that we see in the Caucasus today is comes down to in part to these these relocations. That's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, I, my feeling is that that these things reverberate down through the generations, and that there's a big problem here, and that Russia never really dealt with these things or processed them in that way that we might use now. We probably think, don't we, that Germany, to some extent, has confronted its awful past with the Holocaust and so on, and that it has been a, a kind of processing and dealing with that. Um, but if we look at Russia, very sadly things like this, I think, have not been dealt with and not been processed. And in, for that reason, the hurt and the resentment that were caused by them tends to repeat itself. It lives on. I mean, just to remind you, what we're talking about here is the fact that several Caucasus nations, the Karachais, the Bulkars, the English, the Chechens, you know, these are not huge nations, several hundred thousand people, but they were deported en masse. They were loaded onto Studebaker trucks, which had been provided to the Soviet Union under the American Lend-Lease program, and that they were employed in this terrible act of domestic tyranny. People were loaded into trucks. They were taken to track, um, cattle wagons and dispatched to Central Asia, taking several weeks to get there. Elderly people, children, everybody. Not given very much food, no toilets, obviously, on the train. People dying in the carriages and taken out, left on the sides of the side by the railway. You know, a huge number of people died on that journey and in the early days of being brought to Central Asia where they lived in terrible conditions. And then they weren't allowed to run, return home for about 13 years. Um, and obviously these people left not knowing if they are ever seen their homes again. They had to abandon their livestock. People who had probably grown up with a very kind of a close relationship with, with the land, with their immediate vicinity, with their village, torn away from it. You know, so there had been this idea of Karinizatsa putting down roots, and this is exactly the opposite. This is what you, we call deracination, isn't it? Which means exactly tearing out of roots. And this is a kind of trauma which just doesn't go away, really. Hmm. I mean, it, and it is marked there at a local level. Everybody knows about it. Every person from those nations knows the history. But these things kind of don't go away. So when we come to the 1990s and we see the conflict in Chechnya, of course, there are very immediate reasons for why that happened, political reasons, reasons about um, the spread of Islamism. The social scientists would explore those very specific reasons. But you also have to remember that there's this much greater kind of background throbbing hurt from these historical traumas. And someone like Shamil Basayev, who was the Chechen terrorist leader, the Islamist, who was the architect of Bislan, even though he wasn't present, he had talked about the fact that the deportation of the uh, Chechen people was one reason why he was so motivated to fight against Russia and to bring terror to Russian citizens. So um, you do very much get the feeling that these things like the mass expulsion of the Circassians in the 19th century, which was also done with terrible brutality, and the deportations and so on, that these things just uh, are part of a cycle of violence, very sadly, and that that may even continue to be true, especially if they're never properly kind of dealt with and confronted by wider Russian society. Well, you can understand why they would have difficulty trusting the Russian government or whoever has taken over the regime next when you go from Lenin's policy of in encouraging these ethnic nationalities to express their own culture to this mass deportation, 600,000 people 
dumped into Central Asia, and then they're allowed to come home again under the next leader, under Khrushchev. You, you can see why they, they would mistrust anything coming from the central authority. That's that's very true, of course. Yeah. And 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 you know, these led to other conflicts because um, you know, people came home and found that their um that their homes had been occupied by people of other ethnicity, other groups, or people have been deliberately moved into their homes. Um, so that exacerbated ethnic tensions between different groups within Russia had a very destructive and continuing effect. Yeah, I found this passage on the Soviet legacy really interesting. You say that there's a common misunderstanding that the USSR deep froze ancient enmities between nations, hatreds that thawed and sparked once it was gone, kind of like what people say about Yugoslavia after Tito. But in fact, the communist system incubated many of the bloody conflicts of the 90s, particularly in the Caucasus, by promoting ethnic elites, granting them symbols and political power on defined territories, uh, tools that nationalists use to, to rally support in the vacuum after the Soviet collapse. So this, this power vacuum happens, and then all these nationalities spring back to life again, which were always there but suppressed under under later leaders. Yes, right. I mean, I, I'm obviously not a historian. I'm not an expert on this, but I have a certain feeling that um, before the Russian expansion into the North Caucasus, there was, of course, a conflict between the different peoples there, but there were also many examples of living together and these things that happened in the Tsarist and Soviet period just had a very corrosive effect, unfortunately. So um, and we see conflicts like the Ingush-Ossetian conflict. So between the Muslim Ingush who live in Ingushetia, the, 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 the republic just to the west of Chechnya, and uh, Ossetians in North Ossetia, where Beslan is situated, a, a, a conflict broke out there in the early 1990s, which was a direct result of this uh, these manipulations of, of, of boundaries and movement of people and deportations and so on. That's very sad. And once those ethnic conflicts have begun, then they have their own momentum as well, sadly. You know, they, they, they it's very difficult. And to um, bring people back together, the, 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 uh, the pernicious effect is very long-lasting. Well, you, so you started your walk in one of these regions of of conf territorial conflict, not in Russia, but in Abkhazia, the territory that broke away from Georgia. Why did you decide to start there when you were walking across Russia proper? Partly because I was just fascinated by Abkhazia, I guess. But it, it, it's because um, Abkhazia has, even though it's so, it's south of the mountains, Abkhazia is a, an area of Georgia which broke away in the 1990s. There's another ethnic conflict, effectively. The Georgian population had to flee and then Abkhazia declared itself independent. So it's a de facto independent republic, even though it's not really recognized by anyone much. Uh, but it, its people have quite strong connections with those on the north side of the mountains, So, uh, um, especially with the, the Circassians in the northwest Caucasus. So in a way, it's sort of, in some respects, an honorary part of the north Caucasus, as is South Ossetia these two breakaway regions of Georgia, which have strong ties across across the mountain divide. One memorable encounter in that part of your book was a visit to Stalin's Dasha. His legacy is stamped all over the region, but the feelings about him vary quite widely. So even when he's recognized as a monster, he still seems to be looked up to as a big man. I saw the same thing in Georgia last week. Tell, tell us about the legacy of Stalin today. That's true. I mean, I, although I'd say, um, obviously, in, in Georgia, he's still lauded by many and there's a Stalin museum there isn't there which is also quite laudatory as I remember if it's still there 
Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, they they changed their they've watered it down very slightly now. Um, okay, have it. The whole thing is quite a hagiography. Like it de- deals with Stalin's early life, his early revolutionary activities in Georgia. Huge focus on the Second World War with um, a lot of photos of tractor factories in between then and right. agricultural cooperatives. Yeah, and then suddenly his death mask, and that's it. And here's the Hall of Gifts that, that he was given, but no mention of uh, you know any of the the show trials. Not a single photo of Beria, which was interesting. Really? His fellow Georgian. Yeah. And then at the end, I heard I overheard one of the guides saying, "Well, you know, if you want to hear the negative uh, side of some of these events, there's uh, a museum about the KGB's uh, activities in uh, Lithuania and in Latvia, so you can go there to hear that side, or you can go over here for this other bit. But yeah. this is only about the positive side. So, so very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say I think, but among the deported peoples. He's universally loathed because he's seen as the architect of that. Mm-hmm. So among Karachais and Balkars and English and, and Chechens, they just hate him. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I talked to a Karachai su- survivor of the deportations and he was still shaking with rage when he was talking about Stalin and Beria. And that's, you know, however long it was, 50 years after, 60 years after he'd been deported. So uh, there's no certainly no sympathy there, but elsewhere in the Caucasus he is uh, Stalin is held up in the North Caucasus even he is still held up as a as as a sort of tough uncompromising heroic leader. I, I guess I saw that especially in Dagestan. I've been to a couple of villages there where there are busts of Stalin. Why is that? I'm I'm not sure that I really know. Um, maybe it is a bit of a cult of a strong man there. There perhaps is a little bit of Schadenfreude towards. Chechens and other people, the ones who were deported. I mean, I, I I did speak to one man in Dagestan. I remember who who said, "Oh, the Chechens should have been pushed into the sea, just like Beria wanted." You know, Beria, uh, Stalin's henchman. And there have been some territorial disputes between Dagestan and Chechnya as well. So maybe that's part of the story. But it's uh, it's an intriguing phenomenon that um, on the one hand there are people who detest him very rightly, but on the other there are some who who still love and admire him and perhaps that's not so surprising when that's a that's a wider phenomenon across russia itself well even within the same person sometimes you found contradictions like you, you talked about a gulag survivor in the far north of russia who who slaved for years in a coal mine and slept in a bunker that she and the other inmates had to dig out of the ground on their own and he asked did she blame stalin for her suffering she said no no he didn't know about my imprisonment you know the system was to blame not stalin he was trying to do the right thing yeah, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I think I was reflecting on that moment when I had met a Russian Orthodox priest who was in living at a monastery in in Abkhazia, and he had talked about his own admiration for for Stalin, and and um, I blurted out, "Well, he murdered thousands of priests, you know." But uh, the the Russian pre- priest, I'm sorry, he wasn't a priest; he was a monk, actually said but yes but he he was a great patriot you know and and his attitudes changed and when the nazis were nearing moscow he had people parade around the city with icons um so these can be uh quite contradictory feelings living in one person can't they i mean just to imagine this uh, a man of religion like that talking about leader of of a country that just tried to destroy religion that that killed priests and and um melted down church bells and destroyed buildings and and that turned the very monastery where this 
monk was living into a holiday camp. So yeah, that's quite extraordinary that you do meet those contradictory feelings in a single person. And another another man called Arcady too. So he, he said, you quoted him saying, um, you could say what you like. I saw myself on TV, what he left behind when he died. 15 cups, one of them chipped, you know, nothing. Like he didn't enrich himself. So so therefore he had worked for the people selflessly all this time. That's right. I mean, that's another aspect of the of the idea of Stalin, isn't it? That he was this ascetic guy in his in his kind of slightly shabby tunic. Hmm. In terms of the uh, the hike itself, navigation seemed to be a constant issue. With was that the greatest challenge? The paths just vanishing into the forest all the time and trying to make your way uh, across this relatively trackless region. Mm-hmm. Well, it was certainly one of them. I mean, um, you know, I had done quite a lot of walking in the past, but I've never been someone who's really interested in hiking as a sport. I, I'm someone who likes walking as a, as I was saying, I think a bit like a kind of method, a way of meeting people and being on the ground as it were so i probably wasn't as fully prepared as i should have been i mean i have, I have got some map and compass skills skills but then maybe not quite as good as they should be so and especially in the beginning in the northwest Caucasus, the navigation was quite hard because it's very heavily forested there you know there's much heavier rainfall in the northwest Caucasus than in for example the dry rugged highlands in dagestan in the northeast uh, so you're walking through very thick forest and it can be just quite difficult to find your way. So uh, I did get lost on a few occasions, actually. But, um, you know, that can be not such a bad thing. Getting lost, can it, you sometimes end up meeting interesting people or being in a situation you didn't anticipate. And that makes the thing all, all the more fascinating. Yeah, not, nothing interesting happens when you're found. It's always when you get lost that... Uh... That the best stories happen. That's probably. So, but you also said you you expected to encounter more people on foot in the mountains. But while there was life in the valleys and the mountains, you didn't even find shepherds quite a lot of the time. No, well, I did um, in the in the in the central Caucasus. Actually, shepherds were the people who I kind of did meet more often than not. But um, not many other people. You know, I had expected there would be more people trekking. Maybe I was just unlucky, or maybe that's just the way it worked out. That this, you know, the trekking tradition was extremely strong in the Soviet Union. There were huge parties of walkers tramping through the mountains all the time. Um, you know, they went on these organized trips, maybe, you know, which would be arranged by a factory or something or by the Komsomol or whatever. And that did that did continue in the 90s and the 2000s and and uh, in, even now, I think. But I guess at the time when I had did my walk, it probably had tailed off quite a bit because of the fact that the Islamist insurgency was still going on in uh, the North Caucasus, which had grown out of these wars for independence in Chechnya in the late 90s and early 2000s. So probably there were more groups who might, you know, like pure mountaineers who are going to the very high peaks, but less people who are just trekking like me because there's not really much infrastructure left. I, I quite enjoyed that in a, in a sense. I did have that kind of slightly special feeling that I was getting off the beaten track and being somewhere quite special. That's another thing that surprised me about this region, just how high some of these peaks are. I mean, they make the Alps look like foothills quite often. They're just massive. I, I was hiking last week. I, I got up to around 10,000 feet, so 9,900 9, meters. And the, the peaks just towered above me. Like this this is serious mountaineering territory in, in alpine hiking. But yeah, Absolutely, yeah. And, and there, you know, if you consider the Caucasus to be Europe, and most people do, you know, there are, I think, a dozen odd peaks which are higher than Mont Blanc. And Elbrus is obviously the highest mountain in Europe. Um, and certainly the British climbers who were the pioneers in the Alps in the uh, 19th century 
once they had kind of, in a way, finished there, they moved on to the Caucasus and they were incredibly impressed by the, the, the sheer grandeur of it in comparison to the Alps. And of course, the Alps is wonderful, but um, they, they, they really felt they'd seen something quite different when they arrived in the Caucasus in terms of the, the sheer vastness of the peaks and the great troughs between them and the glaciers. And You can understand why this would this region would spawn such um, interesting mixes of, of ethnicities and small villages cut off from each other in these in these massive peaks. That was the other thing that really stood out for me too. Um, you say that in, in Dagestan, for example, you hiked without a tent or bedding, but every night without fail, a stranger would take you in. That the hospitality of the people is, really stands out from this trip. Absolutely, yeah. That was extraordinary, yeah. And and um, Dagestan is 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 different to that central Caucasus part that I was talking about just now, with the high Caucasus part where there are high pastures and 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 shepherds and and the villages are quite a bit lower down. Um, Dagestan is this whole kind of upland which is just full of tiny little villages, or not so tiny. In fact, it's uh, the mountains there are very populated. And before I set out, I uh, um, had a meeting with a. Minister of Tourism of Dagestan, and and uh, he said, "Oh, don't worry about taking a tent. You just turn up in the village every night, and say, could I speak to the school teacher or the head of the village, and ask them if you could stay the night, and then that will be fine." And I was like, "No, surely that can't be." And he said, "No, no, that will be fine." And that's exactly what happened. And every time I would turn up in the village with a companion I was walking with, uh, Suleiman, a Dagestani, a Dagin. And we would say, I would say, we'd be very happy to pay to, some, to stay this night somewhere. Please let us do that and we'll pay for the food as well. And every time everybody said, no, of course not. That's absolutely without question that you'll just come and stay with me right now. The first person you spoke to. So, um, and that's pretty incredible, you know, to think about the fact that we were traveling through those mountains carrying rucksacks there's pretty much no one just walking through Dagestan I mean there might be people out again up in the high peaks mountaineering but just walking through Dagestan was very unusual at that point I think and um, they could have easily suspected that we were militants or been suspicious and I think there was one occasion when the headman of the village said no I don't really know who you might be you know you could be come to help the militants or something and there was another man from the village who immediately kind of threw himself forward and to save the honor of the village and said no come and stay with us then you know, these are people who have been accused um, down through history of being uncivilized, you know, and this is obviously, we found something quite different. How much resistance did you have from officially, like from, from the Russian government, for example, were you quite free to travel through some of these regions, given the, the propensity for violence that, at, around that time period? In the central Caucasus, where I was going over slightly higher passes, I had to have permits because I was going um as i remember it's because it's in a border zone quite close to the border with georgia so i did acquire these per permits in advance and the border guards who are part of the federal security service the fsb in russia would check up on me but they were actually um helpful as well they were kind of helping point the way and giving me some tips and things they kept sort of um turning up quite often and kind of almost like jumping out from behind bushes, not quite, but it felt a bit like that. So I wasn't quite sure if they were kind of keeping tabs on me or if they were actually on the contrary, really keen to be helpful or a bit of both, really. It was quite curious. Later in Dagestan, uh, it was a bit fraught on occasion because I think people were really a bit suspect of what we were, suspicious of what we were doing there. And it was kind of so strange to see people trudging around with rucksacks and I think a couple of the policemen there were a bit suspicious that we were kind of carrying big bags of dollars to give to the militants or something. 
there was also an occasion where I had marked on a map the places where I had noted that there had been some incident of Islamist violence because I thought, oh, avoid these places. But one of the kind of police or security guys who stopped me was like, what's this map? Is this your kind of drop-off points for your, you know, for your oh, meetings no. with the militants yeah. or something? <laughs> so I had to sort of try and explain that away. And uh, I did get detained on a, a couple of occasions and, 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 and questions. That happened early in the trip in Ampasia as well. That was quite interesting. So you also the fact that when you were crossing the border into Abkhazia, they immediately pulled up a file and said, well, you've written about us before. And they didn't quite like uh, an article you had published some years previously. Actually, that's quite right. That was, in fact, the moment when I got detained because I'd gone myself to ask permission from the security service there to travel to a, a remote village in the islands because supposedly you needed permission to go there. And they kind of, as soon as I got there, they kind of got their talons in me and said, you're a spy. What are you doing here? I was trying to say, well, if I was a spy, I'd hardly show up here, would I? Yeah. <laughs> That's your cunning ruse, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they ended up kind of interrogating me for several hours. It was pretty unpleasant. But on the other hand, maybe they were just playing with me a bit because they didn't like this article that I'd written a few years earlier. You never quite know whether they really think you're a spy or whether it's just kind of fun to play with you a bit and to find a chance to get the revenge on you for writing these um articles kind of uh disparaging the place or whatever so <laughs> yeah but what i should say is overall you know the whole trip was an immensely positive experience in terms of hospitality and help i can't imagine it being people being so helpful anywhere else in the world really maybe i'll be so what you expected when you set out i guess i had some expectation of that having already been there and worked there for a few years but uh, just the extent of it was pretty extraordinary, really. and especially those final three weeks in Dagestan, which was supposed to be or was, you know, the the kind of the heart of the Islamist insurgency, where people had a, a right to be suspicious of, um, you know, people turning up unannounced, um, looking for somewhere to stay the night. You know, nonetheless, we were treated in an incredibly kind of kind and solicitous way. I wanted to ask you about a couple of specific republics you passed through. Like, as if to underline the long history of conflict in the region, you stumbled across a war on your hike. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So I, I, um, I had just uh, come from. I'd, I'd been in Bislan. I'd come down from the mountains um, because it wasn't possible to walk further through the mountains. Um, after Bislan, there were various. After the school siege, there were various rules brought in, which mean you could only move around if you were a foreigner on certain main road so i had to walk down from the mountains and walk along the road and i um came into north ossetia i uh, went to Bislan, sorry and then walked on to bloody kafkaz which is the the capital of uh, north ossetia and just as i arrived there i got and uh, you know found a little hotel room to stay and switched on the tv and there was kind of shooting tracer fire artillery on the, and i sort of thought very lazily to myself oh that's some conflict away in africa or something and no, it turned out that it was war had just broken out literally on the other side of the mountains in South Ossetia, and Georgia had launched an attempt to take back its breakaway region of South Ossetia, and and uh, Russia was preparing to get involved because it props up South Ossetia in the same way as it does Abkhazia, and and um, Cossacks and other militiamen from Russia were gathering in Vladikavkaz where I was, and very soon Russian tanks were going through the tunnel under the mountains to support the Ossetians against the Georgians. So it sort of felt like I'd walked into a war, basically. 
And I actually ended up taking a break from the walk and going back to my job of being a correspondent. My editors asked me if I could go there and report on the conflict because I was right there at, at the moment it began. But that was, uh, as you say, it did kind of underline, sadly, the potentially kind of fractious nature of the region. Ossetia seems quite a, a different kettle of fish to the other uh, republics as well. You mentioned that this uh, that it's Christian. And it was sort of an ally of Russia. How did that come about when the rest of the region was basically an Islamic republics? Well, first of all, were that, was that because of the uh, Ottomans? Did they spread Islam to those regions, those other regions? Well, so it's partly under Ottoman and um, Iranian Persian influence. Mm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm afraid, again, I'm um, I'm not a professional historian, but the, uh, the Ossetians have been Christians going back to, I think, the 18th century, the late 18th century. And for that reason, they were kind of uh, logical allies for the Russians, also also Orthodox uh, Christians. I mean, uh, that said, there's an incredible kind of um, mashing up of, of traditional, I guess, what we used to call pagan belief and uh, Christian beliefs in in um, Ossetia, and 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 those traditional beliefs are still. Still persist now. They have um, interesting rituals there with uh, sacrifices of animals and so on. They eat traditional pies, which are in the in the shape of the sun and, and things like that. So there's there's a very interesting mixture hmm. of tradition and religion. But that quite early conversion to Christianity that was uh, struck, I guess, under the influence of Christian missionaries from Russia and earlier perhaps from Georgia. Yeah, that did mean that uh, that, that Ossetia was a kind of natural ally for Russia. And because of the positioning of the Ossetian people living on both sides of the mountains, they were a kind of natural bridgehead from the North Caucasus to uh, Georgia, which had joined or kind of been coerced into joining the uh, Russian Empire in 1801. So throughout this war, the Caucasus, Caucasian War of Russia advancing into the Caucasus and fighting these Muslim highlanders, uh, Russia did have this bridgehead via the Ossetians over the, the Pass of the Cross, which we mentioned earlier, into Georgia. So it separated the, the fight into two fronts, and that was that was very helpful, I guess. I suppose the republic that most outsiders have heard of in this, this region was Chechnya. Uh, was Chechnya the most dangerous part of the route? That's hard to say, I guess. Perhaps it was Chechnya, English, and Chechnya and Dagestan, the last three republics, mostly because the Islamist insurgency there was most determined. And, uh, you know, the security forces were clashing with these militants trying to track them down. So, you know, principal perhaps danger was just getting caught in the crossfire by bad luck as much as anything else. Potentially just uh, having problems with the security services or... You know, by that time as well, the militants had had really kind of become locked into a kind of global jihad. So uh, as well as fighting the Russians, militants in the North Caucasus were also buying into that fight against the Western world as well, I guess, or they're at least being allied with people abroad who were involved in that fight. So, you know, it, it could have been pretty unpleasant if I'd fallen into some militant hands, potentially. Yeah, so it's, there, were, there, there was a degree of danger. And I, yeah, perhaps Dagestan, perhaps Chechnya. So you'd been there in the past as a journalist and met Kadyrov. Uh, what were your impressions of him? 
Yeah, so this is Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the uh, the pro-Kremlin leader of Chechnya, and he's still now, and he was then. Um, I actually met him in 2006, uh, shortly before he became the leader of Chechnya. Uh, he's the son of Ahmad Kadyrov, who was a kind of Russian placeman in, in Chechnya who got assassinated. And uh, so he ended up taking over his father's role. So Ramzan as well, was a, as well as his father, they were, they were former rebels who had been fighting against Russia and then they came across to the Russian side. Well, what can you say about Kadyrov? I mean, basically what happened was that there was a kind of Faustian pact and, and um, Kadyrov was allowed to cultivate Chechnya as his own fiefdom where he could basically do whatever he liked in exchange for him rubbing out the Islamist insurgency with a, with a, using whatever brutal methods he, he, want, he wanted to. So, and he was, you know, in the end quite effective in that. You know, eventually the, the the resistance, the insurgency in the North Caucasus effectively got stamped out. And that's partly a result of what Kadyrov managed to achieve. But the, the cost of that was enormous because, you know, Chechnya was effectively allowed to turn into a, a, a mini dictatorship inside already uh, authoritarian or autocratic Russia. And um, he, he then and now acts with complete impunity, you know, um, if he decides he doesn't like gay people, he can have them kidnapped and killed. If he doesn't like people being politically opposed to him, something awful can happen to them. So this culture, this Chechnya, which actually has a very long egalitarian tradition of people not being raised above each other or not having a, that kind of strongman leader at all, has become this kind of um, extraordinary dictatorship in this corner of Russia, and it's just left alone to flourish like that, which is a great tragedy, really. When, of course, there are people there who, and they have their right to that opinion, of course, feel that even what is happening now is better than having bombs raining down all the time, carpet bombing and terrible destruction. You know, Chechnya has been rebuilt somewhat shoddily in places but it is a functioning place it's just a terrible dictatorship and you can't put your head above the parapet if you're in any way against what Kadyrov's thinking some people who kind of agreement in agreement with him will say that life is much better there what was your impression of him as a person when you when you're in the same room with him i mean i could see that he had a certain charisma he was very convinced about his religious belief i was there when he and his family members and friends were performing a, a Sufi ritual called Zikr. Uh, what can I say? I mean, you know, I can only talk about how he behaved, perhaps. You know, he was he had a tiger and a lion which he brought out to show us, and he was goading them and spitting on them in order to try and get them to retaliate. He had his uh, squad of personal bodyguards at his home come out and march around in front of us, a whole squad of them, 50-odd men, I guess while he was shouting Allah Akbar at them and they were replying. I guess I can judge him by what I know has happened in Chechnya under his rule, and that's the fact that um, many people have been kidnapped and tortured or simply disappeared. He's obviously um, a very brutal guy. You mentioned that he, he was performing a Sufi ritual. How, how common is Sufism in the region, in the North Caucasus? Well, no, that, that's still uh, predominant in 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 Chechnya and in uh, in Dagestan. Yeah, 
and it's seen there as uh, what, what they would call traditional Islam in a, in opposition to Wahhabism, which is the the name generally used for radical Muslims, especially those involved in violence. Um, Salafis is another term that's used. Yeah, I think I think that's a bit of a false opposition in a way because there are Salafis there who are actually quite peaceful, but um, people who are observers of uh, more conservative strains of Islam or who might go to the sort of wrong mosques uh, quite easily become painted as extremists and um, potential militants, even if they've had nothing to do with it. So he's sort of an example of um, collaboration with Russia or the current leadership of Russia, but no one seems to symbolize resistance to Russia better than Imam Shamil. Tell us about him. He's quite an amazing character. That's true. Yeah, he's an extraordinary character. So he was the leader of the um, of the Chechen and Dagestani resistance to Russia in the 19th century Caucasian War from 1817 to 1864. He's an Avar. That's one of the many ethnicities in Dagestan. Dagestan is this incredible jumble of ethnicities, at least 30-odd. One of the larger ones is the Avars. And he turned out to be basically a terrific fighter and managed to hold off the Russian Empire for several decades, fighting quite often from these mountain villages with kind of guerrilla tactics. And he was a Sufi leader as well. So he had this kind of mystic aura to him as well as being a very effective military man. He fought on for many decades, but eventually had to capitulate in um, 1859. He, the, the, the Russian Empire used a very clever tactic in a way that it began to decimate forests in Chechnya and Dagestan, and that meant there was le- there were less hiding places for for the guerrilla islander resistance, and they had to retreat to the high mountains. And eventually, he got kind of cornered in one of them with only a few hundred fighters left in the uh, village called Gunib, which I went to on my journey, and he was forced to surrender. Um, but interestingly, he was he was. Um, he was kind of treated like a fallen head of state, even though he'd been portrayed as this kind of primitive villain. He was allowed to be, he was taken off to the Russian city of Kaluga and he was given a nice house to live in with a little mosque in the back garden. Um, he was respected. He was allowed to meet kind of local dignitaries. He was kind of, uh, and he had several of his wives and sons with him. He was given a fairly comfortable lifestyle and eventually he was allowed to. Um, go off on the on the Hajj to, to Mecca, and he ended up dying while he was on that. Uh, but he's, he's, he's a, 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 again, a kind of, uh, an interesting example of how um, Russia was both um, repulsed, but also quite attracted by a character from the Caucasus. As we come to the end, I wanted to mention a couple people you encountered whose um, story stayed with me. One sort of felt like a symbol of the region's independence and the other of uh, its depth of memory and its reverence for the past. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell us about the man who built the road single-handedly. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting story too. So that was towards the end of my journey when I came to a village called Kubachi in uh, Dagestan, which is well known historically as being a place where silversmiths work. It's quite a large, prosperous uh, village. There's there's a, a silver making uh, little factory there where they make goblets and jewelry and things like that. And I met the head of the village, a guy called Gaji Isa. And um, you know, so much of my journey, I had to confront these quite traumatic and kind of bloody things that had happened in the past and in the not too distant past in the Caucasus. 
there were s- several moments, you know, where I met these people I felt were completely inspirational. And Gajius had done, done something extraordinary. So he lived in, in his um, village, there were various traders who wanted to get to the local market town. And he said that basically it was too far away. You know, it was 15, 20 miles away. I don't remember how much exactly, uh, because they had to go a very circuitous route on the main road. And he said, so I thought I'll build my own road. I'll build them a road so they can get quicker to market. And um, he gathered together five, four or five friends. They managed to get a bulldozer from some friendly politician. And they just set out to build a road through the mountains, through a forest, through a, a, a gorge. And they started out on this project blithely, just just a handful of them. Never, you know, they're not professional road builders or anything. They just used dynamite and the... And the uh, bulldozer and everything and little by little her friends lost interest until only Gajesar was left with this project it's like something from a poem or from a saga or something and so he just carried on on his own building a road one man to build a road and it took another couple of years as I remember for him to do it I say a road of course it's a dirt path but it's you know you could go along it in a car so he had to clear the trees, and you know he would he would lie under night uh, out at night under the stars with the rain dripping down his neck, and and then get up and start putting his dynamite in holes again. And he achieved it. You know he built the road to the uh, to connect his 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 little his village with the with the market town. So I just felt that was such an extraordinary achievement. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. such a symbol of um, uh, ingenuity and deter- determination. Exactly the words. Yeah, that's right, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. The other guy that really stuck with me, you met a man uh, living alone in a deserted village, keeping the memory of that place alive. And he said, I'm completely alone. Every morning I get up and I walk around the village. I go down the central street, see if any walls have fallen. Sometimes I cut nettles with a scythe. And when I'm passing the houses, I recall the names of the families who lived there. And I say their names to myself, not to forget. So this sense of uh, the depth of history and, and the reverence for memory in these places came across really strongly. Yeah, that's true. I'm afraid I momentarily can't remember the gentleman's name, but that was that felt to me incredibly poignant, especially that moment when he talked about the the, the fact that he spoke spoke aloud the the names of the people there in order not to forget. That really struck home for me. This is this is a village in Highland Dagestan, from which. People had been forcibly, as I understand it, moved to uh, Chechnya to populate one of the villages that was emptied by the deportations. And it was a village, the one in Dagestan, which had been built up with fearful effort in o- over the decades and centuries, in fact, where people had lived there in the past, you know, high up in the mountains, very you know, difficult to get to, having to build houses you know mostly by hand with by, with stone and so on so by the time they came back whatever it was 15 years later or something there was just no way really of building it back up again or it would have been such a huge effort that by that time people were more attracted to go and live in the city so the village where this man had grown up just was left a founder really and he had gone away himself to live in the town and then come back only recently to be the kind of caretaker because there's a there's a, there's a mausoleum there and a, it's a very special place in a religious sense where pilgrims come. So he just lived up there on the mountains on his own um, and looked after it and greeted people who came trekked up there to 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 see the mausoleum and so on and a beautiful mosque. It's, but this was the place where he'd lived as a child, you know. So he talked about the fact that he remembered people laughing and talking and arguing and the clamor of life, basically. 
I think the phrase that he told me at the end was, it's a very strange thing where the place where you grew up becomes a museum, you know. So again, that was very poignant, I thought. And that was um, something which had kind of reverberated through my experience in my book was this idea of being forcibly removed from your home and then coming back and thinking, can you really replace what's been lost? That's what really stayed with me throughout um after closing the last page of the of the book, not not so much the the trauma at the beginning and the horrible things you witnessed or the violence that the region is known for, but but this sense. And in closing, you said, um, this is a book about resilience as much as the hauntings of history. So many times on my walk, I met people who were surviving, even thriving on the stoniest of ground. To see a shepherd crouched in his cosh on a wild ca- Caucasus slope, his face lit by a fire like a medieval anchorite, is to feel a sense of permanence on earth. The deep roots of the people in this region, their traditions and these proud hospitable cultures. That's what stayed with me afterwards. So it's it's a really remarkable read and uh, a fantastic book. And I, I hope it does well. And I hope uh, listeners will pick it up. So thank you very much, uh, Tom, for your time today. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for taking such an interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.